0: Uh, I uh, I'm sorry I disappeared before the service. I was supposed to change our cloths over to Pentecost, so I'll do that after service. <laughs> but we'll uh, we'll be in Pentecost season after this. I'm sh- uh, you have to notice that Steph makes sure that we change those cloths on the, the cross. So you'll notice that the colors will change and we'll have different stuff up there, uh, which is which is a fun thing to remember as you go through the different seasons of the church. So. Uh, last week we talked a little bit about a Pentecost passage, and this week we'll talk a little bit about it too. But the Holy Spirit, of course, is a part of everything that we do, and we know that in Jesus the Holy Spirit has been poured out on every believer, and that uh, that's how we live our lives, is out of the resource of the Holy Spirit who brings us the life of Jesus. So today I'm going to talk to you about Jeremiah. And uh, so some of you, most of you are pretty familiar with kind of how I preach and. You may remember that typically i I will preach out of a book and i'll kind of work through it one or two verses at a time so this year has been very different for me because i've kind of gone to doing more of a passage or even sometimes a collection of passages as i try to give you a general sense of a book or a portion of a book so i hopefully i'll remember how to preach uh next year uh that uh but this year but this year i'm doing the best that i can with with what we're trying to do um And uh, so I'm going to go through a little bit of a larger portion. I think when we looked at Jeremiah, we mostly worked our way through chapter 1 together. And uh, I have preached through Jeremiah uh, beginning of chapter 4 in the past. So it's been nice to kind of work my way through and see what the Lord would want to reveal to me about things that I've preached on before. Uh, So today I'm going to look at Jeremiah chapter 3. I just want to remind you a little bit about Jeremiah real quick. Jeremiah begins working as a prophet. I don't know if working is the right word. He begins the call to the prophet as apparently a pretty young man, which makes sense timeline with where he ends up. Uh, If we we think of him as kind of in his early 20s when he starts prophesying. And he begins prophesying under the reign of King Josiah. And if you know anything about Israel's history, Judah's history, you, you would know that Josiah is one of the best kings that you can find. In fact, I think you could probably make an argument he is the best king as far as following what God wants uh, that all of Israel had. It would be either David or Josiah. So it's interesting that Jeremiah begins prophesying during Josiah's reign because Jeremiah's message is a very difficult message of God's coming judgment that is is going to descend on the people of Judah uh, because of the sins that they've committed because he's speaking to a people who are actually repenting and starting to turn things around but his message is going to be this isn't a real repentance that needs to take place for everything to change. And it's not Josiah's fault. He really seems legitimate about it. It's not every person's fault. A lot of the people seem legitimate about it. But he says there's a root problem at the core, at the heart of the people, that God still needs to deal with. So uh, a lot of times you'll hear people talk about Jeremiah as the weeping prophet uh, because he had a difficult life and he had a difficult message to share. Uh, Jeremiah was never married. Uh, was rejected by people his whole life, and then he ended his life dying in exile in Egypt. And yet, in all of this, we see joy in Jeremiah's message in being faithful to God. Yes, hard times, yes, struggling with why did you ask me to do this, God, but also joy and delight in who God is. And that's one of the reasons, I guess, I love the, past, the, the passage in the book so much of Jeremiah is because it shows us that you can have a difficult life and things cannot be how you want, but God can still show up and you can delight in who he is and what he wants to do in your life. So I think it speaks to us whenever, you know, we're depressed, and I've, I've dealt with depression different times in my life off and on. Uh, whenever things are hard, Jeremiah can be a great book to look at. Uh, but either way, whether times are good or times are hard, it's a good book to look at. So today we're going to look at the idea of embracing the change that God brings. Uh, we don't have Uh, Today I gave everyone a week off of nursery and children's church together, so it's okay if it's a little bit louder. It's always okay if it's a little bit louder, but I just want you to know that that together the kids are in church and we're experiencing worship together with them, and that's a great blessing. So Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 6 through 11 is where I'm going to be. Just start off here, Jeremiah 3, 6 through 11. During the reign of King Josiah, the Lord said to me, Have you seen what faithless Israel has done? She has gone up on every high hill and under every spreading tree and has committed adultery there. I thought that after she had done all this she would return to me, but she did not. And her unfaithful sister Judah saw it. I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. Yet I saw her unfaithful sister Judah had no fear. She also went out and committed adultery. Because Israel's immorality mattered so little to her, she defiled the land and committed adultery with stone and wood. In spite of all this, her unfaithful sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but only in pretense, declares the Lord. The Lord said to me, Faithless Israel is more righteous than unfaithful Judah. All right, so uh, the beginning passage here, obviously a difficult message and pretty graphically described by Jeremiah. uh, This idea of committing adultery with the idols of stone and wood and what's happened with Israel and with Judah. And uh, Jeremiah will do that several times. But important for us to realize the context that Jeremiah is speaking in. Again, If you go back into 2 Kings and you read the end of 2 Kings, last few chapters there, you will find Josiah, this young king, becomes king at eight years old. But he, apparently his mother has had a big influence on his life. And she was a believer in God. And those around him are speaking to him the truth. And he goes and he says, what can we do to correct what's wrong in this nation? And they find what is probably a scroll of Deuteronomy hidden away in the temple and Jeremiah opens up the scroll, and he himself reads it to the people, and they all begin weeping, saying, we are not following the laws that God gave to us. This God who wants relationship with us, we have had no interest in relationship with him. We've been doing our own thing, and they repent, and they change what they're doing, and one of the big things that they do is they it says that Jeremiah destroyed the high places. We talked about that, I think, uh, before, this idea that uh, when the Israel was worshiping false gods, instead of worshiping together in Jerusalem, instead of coming together in community like we're doing today, even all of you have done it today on a Memorial Day weekend, a holiday weekend, you have made the choice to come into church. And I would assume that part of that choice is that you find it to be valuable to be together in community, hearing the word of God and responding to that word together, looking at people around you, looking them in the face Uh, looking as they respond and you respond, singing together praises to God because you find value in the idea of, as a community, responding to who God reveals himself to be and what his Holy Spirit puts on your heart as far as what he wants from you. You found value in that. And so God says to the people that want to be in relationship with him, the people that he's chosen out of all the world, he says, I want you to be together as a community. Come before me and let me speak to you. And when the people are off track from that, they say, Ah, that's nice, but I'd rather kind of do my own thing. I'd rather find my own answers. I'd rather see if I can figure things out on my own. And, and they do that by worshiping false gods—these gods of stone and wood. And they would—they would, they would uh, find high places. So you know, you'd find a hill, a mountain. You'd find a tree up there because a tree can give you shade in a hot day. And you would build there an altar to your false god. Josiah's crucial because Josiah says we're going to tear down all these high places every high place in my kingdom is going to be torn down all those altars to the false idols torn down and we're only going to worship the one true God we're all going to come together as a community and weep and bow before him like we talked about last week with Joel every single person is going to do this from the baby nursing to the bridegroom and the bride to the priest to the king they're all going to fall before God Josiah embraces that message. That is a beautiful and wonderful thing. And I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about uh, Josiah a little bit more as we go through uh, the next portion of this preaching through the Bible in a year together. But it's interesting, right, that Jeremiah here, in the middle of that repenting time, says it's not really what needs to happen. You don't really mean it. And that is very difficult to hear, I think, when when you read the story of Josiah, to know that Jeremiah identifies that the people don't really mean it. And it's basically this idea of of a uh, of. A pretense that's going on so Israel the Northern Kingdom they had no pretense about it they had no interest in falling after God and you can see that if you read first and second Kings. the Northern Kingdom every single king is bad they're all bad they don't they don't care about God they don't care about what he wants and 200 years before the Southern kingdoms falls Assyria comes in and destroys the southern kingdom you can see the effects of it in the New Testament when they talk about Samaritans because Samaritans are the leftovers from the Northern Kingdom they're people who have intermixed With the Syrians. They've kind of done their own thing. They have idolatrous practices that are still part of their faith. They sort of have some similar scriptures, but they're into their own thing. Uh, That's still the effects of that. They were never really into it. Their pride is really clear here. They just do it out in the open, worshiping, getting in relationships with these other idols. But God says the same thing's happening in Judah, but they're pretending about it, and it's worse, right? That's what he says here at the end of the passage in verse 11. He says, I would rather have faithless Israel than unfaithful Judah. I would rather have someone who is just uh, out and and open about their disobedience than someone who pretends to obey and, and pretends that they have it right but doesn't really care on the inside. Uh, Not that either is good, right? Either one of those things will destroy you, but God says, I'd rather have the honesty. It kind of, when he says that here, it kind of reminds me of Jesus, right? Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. When they ask him, why are you hanging out with all the sinners, the tax collectors, and the prostitutes? Jesus says, because they know they need help, because they're not hiding their sin. You're busy hiding your sin, so I can't even get through to you. Uh, Jesus never has any issue running into somebody with a demon, uh, who's demon-possessed. Jesus says, get out of him, and then begins to deal with that person and the problems that they have. Jesus has a heck of a time with Pharisees. Because Pharisees, they're not honest about what's going on in their lives. They think they have everything together, but they're not willing to deal with the brokenness inside. That's what you see here in this passage. God says, we have a broken relationship, and we can't even get started on fixing it because you're not willing to get to the root of the matter and what needs to change for us to make things right. So when I read this passage, the first thing I want to say when I look at the message of Jeremiah is to say, where am I on this spectrum? Right? It's not good to be in Israel's spectrum. It's not good to be in a place where I just don't care what God wants. But it's also, God says, even worse. It can be even worse to be in a place where, oh God, uh, I know who you are. I know what you want from me and I'm going to give you lip service. I'm going to show up when I'm supposed to show up. I'm going to act the part, but I don't really have anything legitimate going on in the inside. And the story of Pentecost is that story, right? The story of Pentecost is that story. All those tax collectors, prostitutes, and sinners that Jesus collected and had along with him, they, they, their lives have been rocked. By Jesus being crucified and raised from the dead and ascending into heaven, they're left saying, well, what do we do now? We're still just the same collection of, you know, just riffraff that Jesus had all around. And what do we do now? And the Holy Spirit descends on them in that room, and everything in their lives changes. And in in 300 years, they won the world for Jesus. That bunch of riffraff, run the world for Jesus, because they were willing to be honest about who they were and say, hey, we are broken people who don't have it together, but the Holy Spirit's here, and he's bringing us the presence of Jesus, and suddenly everything about our lives have changed. We love how we can't love. We live how we don't, can't live. We speak, and we, we preach, and we act in ways that we never thought we could before because Jesus in his life has taken over who we are, and that's what Jeremiah says that people need and aren't experiencing. So let's look at the next passage together, 12 through 14. Keep reading here, 12 through 14. Go proclaim this message toward the north, northern kingdom. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will frown on you no longer, for I am faithful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt. You have rebelled against the Lord your God. You have scattered your favors to foreign gods under every spreading tree and have not obeyed me, declares the Lord. Return, faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband, I will choose you, one from a town and two from a clan, and bring you to Zion. Now something pretty incredible happens in this passage that you can't miss, and I, I'm excited to share with you today. Uh, next week we'll talk about Hosea. Hosea is the prophetic book that most unpacks the metaphor of God as husband to his people. Uh, so it puts us in the position of wife to God as husband and explains relationship love with God in terms of a romantic relationship of a marriage and it'll be interesting to look at that together but Jeremiah addresses that several times and here he does as well he he uses a bunch of different metaphors from father from father and children husband and wife to king and 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 uh, citizens of the king All those things come along here. There's potter and clay. Uh, That's another famous one from Jeremiah. He has a lot of good metaphors to describe the relationship that God wants to have with us. But here he identifies this idea of husband and wife. Now, if you notice, earlier on in verse 8 that we read, God says, I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away. And the same thing happened with Judah. Now, in verses 12 through 14, he says, return faithless Israel, return unfaithful Judah, I am your husband. Now what is mind-blowing about this passage is that we know from the Old Testament, from those books that we worked through earlier in the year, uh, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, that it is against the law for a husband who's divorced his wife, for those who have been divorced, to get back together. In the Old Testament law, that is not allowed. God says, I will not allow that to happen. There's, there's reasons behind it you can think of as to why God would say, it's going to get super messy. I'm not going to let that happen. He says, once you've divorced, it's not going to go back. That's not going to happen. But here in this passage, we see a message from God about his people saying, we got divorced. The relationship broke up, but I don't care. I want you back. I'm still your husband. Return to me. What God is saying in this passage, what is so mind-blowing from Jeremiah and the language that he uses here is that God says, I am willing to set my law aside because of how much I love and want to be in relationship with you. Because of how deep and true and lasting the union and relationship we are supposed to have is to me. I'm still your husband. I'm still choosing you. Now, I, uh, when I first worked through this passage, I think I was probably super fresh from the time that my parents got divorced. So I, I can't say that I'm a child of divorce because I was—I don't know, 26, 27 when my parents got divorced. But I am—you I, know—that is part of my experience in this world is divorce. And I remember just being shocked by the things that came into my mind. Now, we know that uh, divorce is part of this world, and, and I'm sure that throughout this, this room, you've had experiences of it. Some of you very personally, some of you in uh, marriages in your life, and there, nothing in this passage Nothing in this passage is saying, "Hey, we need to look at those who've been divorced and condemn them and judge them." No, that's not happening. Obviously, God is saying, "I want to bring the, I want to bring what's broken and bring it back to life." So, anything that's broken in our world, God can bring to life. I've seen that happen so much in the relationships that my parents have with their children, and with uh, they've both got remarried. The relationships, the joys that we get to experience with how they got remarried, and, and all that—I've seen God work through the beauty of that. But it also is incredibly important to realize how much um, brokenness and pain there is in that and throughout our society. I remember when I was a youth pastor, I, uh, I started off, we had a youth group on Sunday nights, and we had 12 kids. And I was like, well, why do we have only 12 kids coming? And I talked to some of the kids that were connected to the church and the community, and I realized that about 75% of the kids that I knew were from broken homes and they spent the weekends with the parent that they didn't have during the week, and so they'd be coming back home on Sunday nights. So I moved youth group to Tuesday night. I don't know, about a month or so later we had 40 kids, because that's what it was. It was just looking at the situation and saying, this is who we are. And I remember going through that experience just thinking about like how different life was for them than for me as the oldest of seven children, uh, children of a pastor and his wife. We were homeschooled through high school, like life was all about the family how different it was for them and how I could never experience that and then just you know I don't know five or six years later I experienced it in my own way and I remember thinking to myself you know I I heard my parents talk about how when they uh, were married it was a very difficult first four years and they were trying to get pregnant and things were about to fall apart and they got pregnant with me and then they stuck together and so I remember just thinking to myself, so really, really, this ultimately comes down to me, right? If I hadn't happened, then they would have figured this out earlier, but they stuck together for me, right? And, and, and the thoughts go through your mind about like, wow, am I a mistake? Am I, am I really supposed to be here? Like those thoughts go through your mind. Even as a mid-20 person, can you imagine what it feels like for somebody who's like five, six, seven, and eight, I thought to myself as I experienced that. So when I look at this passage and I hear God speaking about divorce, about breaking relationship, about everything falling apart, I see a God who knows the depth of human pain. And over and over in, in the prophets, we see this idea. God over and over is saying, you have hurt me immensely, but I'm not giving up on you. It is broken beyond repair but not beyond repair because I'm going to repair it. I'm going to find a way. So when Jeremiah speaks to Judah, when he speaks to Israel, and he says, look, the Assyrians are coming in, the Babylonians are coming in, everything you know is going to be taken away from you, everything you treasure is going to be destroyed, what God is saying is, this is the only way for me to make things right. What has happened between us is as bad as it can possibly be. It is as broken as anything can be broken. So we're going to start from level one and build it back up together. I'm going to go and I'm going to find all those who are pretending that they have it together, and all those who don't give a heck about anything that I say and I'm going to bring them all together and show them love because I want to bring this relationship right and there's no place you can go where I won't come back to find you where I won't call you back to myself there's no break in relationship that I can't fix you know, that point where you're watching the movie and you're like, oh, that's it. This couple's never getting back together. After he made that decision, there's no way that they're going to get back together. But then the movie, the scriptwriters surprise you and somehow make it all work. And you're crying at the end of the movie. That's the movie that God is writing. He's, the, he's writing the movie where no matter what it is that you've done, no matter what mistake that you've made, he is going to bring it to a loving Uh, sob your eyes out conclusion that's what he wants for us and that's what he presents in this passage even though even though he has to break his own law he wants to make things right between us what a beautiful thing let's look at verses 15 through 17 Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart, says God. Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will lead you with knowledge and understanding. In those days when your numbers have increased greatly in the land, declares the Lord, people will no longer say the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It will never enter their minds or be remembered. It will not be missed, nor will another one be made. At that time they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all nations will gather in Jerusalem to honor the name of the Lord. No longer will they follow the stubbornness of their evil hearts. So, in this passage, we get to see God say, here's how I'm going to make it work. And he says, first of all, I'm going to give you faithful shepherds. Then he says, I'm going to get rid of the Ark of the Covenant. And then he says, I'm going to get rid of your stubborn hearts. So, these are the three things he's going to do to make things right in the, within the people of Israel. Uh, it remind, this passage reminds me, we had this scene that God describes in this passage acted out for us in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Great movie, speaking of movie. Uh, Indiana Jones goes and he finds the Ark of the Covenant and of course, then the government gets involved, and at the end of the movie, Indiana Jones is like, what are you doing with the Ark of the Covenant? It's a really important piece of archaeological history. What are you doing with it? And they're like, oh, we have our top men, top men on the situation. And at the end of the movie, they're wheeling the Ark of the Covenant in a big crate into a, a basement filled with big crates where no one will ever find it. And it's funny to me that God says, that's what I want to happen with the Ark of the Covenant. When Steven Spielberg wrote Raiders of the Lost Ark, don't know if he had Jeremiah 3 and front of him at the time, but if he did, he acted out this passage. And it's interesting because what God is saying in this passage is that the Ark of the Covenant wasn't enough. This idea of having a central place of worship and a central place where you knew that God's presence was going to be wasn't enough. This idea of, of you having someone who would tell you those truths and, and lead you in those truths, it wasn't enough. I'm going to give you my very heart Express in the shepherds that I give you, I'm going to take away the Ark of the Covenant and I'm going to give you a new heart inside of you, and that's what's going to change the situation. Now, it's important for us to realize the Ark of the Covenant isn't a bad thing. The Ark of the Covenant is a really cool thing that God gave the people of Israel. He said, Hey, uh, I want to have a relationship with you, I want to live in your neighborhood, I want to make it so you can come over and we can hang out, I'll make you bread. We'll make you meet. We'll have some meals together, barbecue for Memorial Day. You'll be able to come over anytime. And I'm going to live on this Ark of the Covenant. And it's really neat because we're gonna build this thing. It's gonna have gold, all kinds of best wood that we can have inside. Will be the Ten Commandments and the special uh, rod that budded, even though it was a dead branch. It budded because of the power that I have. You're gonna put that in there. Some of the manna that I fed you every day when you didn't have any other options. I fed you from the skies bread. We're gonna put some of that in there. These are all kind of memories of who we are together. They're the rings that we had when we got engaged, the rings that we have when we got married. All that's gonna be in the ark together. And on top of the ark there's going to be these beautiful statues of angels and their wings are going to be spread over the ark. And in the middle of their wings is going to be where I'm going to sit. This is where I'm going to live. You can come and talk to me there. And what we're going to call that place, it isn't going to be called the place of judgment. It isn't going to be called the place of fear. It isn't going to be called the place of the awesome presence of God that blows your mind. We're going to call that place where I live the seat of mercy, the mercy seat because when you encounter me, I'm going to show you mercy. When you come to know me, I'm going to show you love. That's who I am. That's what the Ark of the Covenant is, a beautiful thing. What a great gift that God gave the people of of Israel. Uh, You don't have to think about, you know, how it melted people's faces in, in Indiana Jones. No, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful place where God shows us his love. But in this passage, God says, you're not even going to remember it anymore. We're going to put it in a crate and hide it away in a basement, and you're never going to think about it again. And why is that? Why does he want to do that? Because he's trying to communicate to the people of Israel to say, I see it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough for a relationship with you. I have to have something more. I want to bring the seed of mercy and plant it inside of your heart. I want to bring my presence and my love and have it live inside of your very person. It has to be more than coming and and visiting me and and knowing where I live and seeing these these fancy things and and being reminded. It has to be more than that. I have to come and live inside of you. Uh, It reminds me a little bit as I think about uh, divorce and what it did on my life. I know for a fact that my parents' marriage and the family that we had together Was for me an idol of some kind. I know that I placed a lot of my identity and my value in who we were as a family and that we weren't like the rest of the world and that there was just something different about the life we had together. And I remember when that first moment when my parents told all of us, hey, we are going to get a divorce. I remember that it felt like mentally like everything was falling down. Everything that I'd based my life on was falling apart. And I didn't know who I was anymore and what life was supposed to be. And give me, I don't know, give me five years out from that. Give me five years out from that. And I look at this passage and I hear God telling the people of Israel, I'm going to take the Ark of the Covenant away from you and i see and i hear god telling me i'm going to take this away from you not that god wanted my parents to get divorced not that god wanted my parents to make them the various decisions that led them to get a divorce i can't tell you that i can't tell you what god wants in those broken situations what i can tell you is how he uses the brokenness and the failures of our lives to show us that he's the only thing that we need in this world and that if anything is coming between relationship with him and being in the right uh, place where we can hear from his love and hear from his presence, if anything is coming in the way from, uh, from that, it has to be removed. It has to be put to the side. It has to be shelved in the basement and forgotten with those other things. It can be good and great and, and an amazing place to experience his presence for a while, but if I hold on to that and make that my portion of my identity that makes my life make sense, he's going to remove that from me until all I have is relationship with him. At least that's what I've seen in my life. And that is what has given me life So you each one of us today I know that god is speaking to us about something And I hope that whatever it is in our lives next Isn't going to be as painful as what I described that kind of divorce experience Most of the time. It's not as hugely traumatic and painful as that Usually it's something a little bit more like hey quincy nudge nudge how much time and effort are you spending on this thing, and how could you be investing it in experiencing the life that I've called you to? This may have been really good for a while, but it's preventing you from what I'm calling to you next. This may have been great for a while, but the change I want to bring about in your life is one where my, my heart and my presence is going to change everything about you. And that's what the Holy Spirit promises us. So let's go to the Lord in prayer.